Sprouta opens up a world of collective expertise and unique solutions for organizations who have the drive to maximize their impact and want to do good work in the world. Sprouta gives you a new way to identify and solve your real challenges within people, performance, and culture. This is a Sprouta podcast. Hi, my name is Craig Foreman, also known as Culture Craig, and I'm a lead people scientist with CultureAmp, the world's top-ranked people and culture platform. I've always been driven by a genuine curiosity of people and have built a career around my personal mission to help the world work better by improving the places we work. In this podcast, we're amplifying the professional and personal stories of people in our industry who are passionate about making a difference and courageously delivering better experiences for humans at work. This is Humanity Works with me, Culture Craig. Three, two, one. Here we go. In the late 80s, eight-year-old Cherry Ward fled the Myanmar uprisings with her family and only a suitcase filled with childhood treasures. For Cherry, this is where her adventurous spirit began. And as an adult, she has embraced creativity and second chances to build a successful career within HR. As the People and Capabilities Manager across Asia for the world's largest mining services provider, Cherry is the calm and steady voice managing the complexities and opportunities that differences in culture, language, and religion bring to an organization. We are actually shifting the culture, and I have a part to play in that, and and leading that in many instances, and having conversations to shift mindsets, whether it's around leadership, inclusivity, LBGTI, and allyship, as you know, some of the countries in Asia have some really strong laws against single-sex marriages and so on. And so I think, you know, I have that opportunity to shape the culture of the people I work with, the lives that they lead in the organisation. Hey, Cherry, thank you so much for taking the time doing this. Uh, really excited to have met you through this process and, and have you join uh, the Sprouted Podcast. So thanks for being here. Oh, thank you, Craig. I'm really excited to be here and really excited where this conversation leads. It's always a mystery. We're going to see, uh, we'll see where this one, one goes, but um, I know we've had a, a chance to check in. So I, mm-hmm. there's some great places we're going to go, but I also leave that space to allow these conversations to happen as they should. Let's just start with your high level introduction. Let's say I met you at a cocktail party. Hey, Cherry, I'm Culture Craig at Culture Amp. I'm a people scientist, and you are? I'm a senior HR leader. I work for the largest mining services provider in the world, and I have a crazy job looking after 8,000 people in our Asia operations, which keeps me very busy. Wow. I, I'm looking forward to, to, to asking and learning. It's, it's a lot of people, especially in that kind of environment. What if I asked you that question again and said, well, who, you know, Cherry, who, who are you? Like, how would you describe yourself? What makes you you? And what are important things people should know about you? First of all, I'm a mom you know, of a 10-year-old boy, a wife to a wonderful and supportive husband, and also a mother to some fur babies. So I have two Labradors and six chickens that bring so much joy. Feather babies. Uh, yeah, feather babies. Occasionally, <laughs> one would jump up on that window screen throughout the day. So I live in Brisbane, Australia, which is known as the Sunshine State, and it is beautiful. Um, it's probably the equivalent of Florida in the States, mm-hmm. where there's a lot of sun, um, beaches and so on. And I was born in Burma, um, which is now called Myanmar. Most people um, have become familiar with it, probably not for the right reasons in the last three months. And a daughter of immigrants who migrated to Australia in the late 80s 
Um, and I grew up in Sydney and have been around the world, have lived in different cities and, you know, really just passionate about living an adventurous life. So I'm an avid skier, something I took up later in life. Love being outdoors, so, you know, mountain climbing, rock climbing. Recently took up mountain biking. I have had a fall. And anything to do, you know, outdoors, hiking, adventure, spending time with my family and traveling. Got it. Yeah, I am with you on that outdoors. And I, I live in Marin County, California, which I think is, is a special spot in the mountain biking world. Some say this is kind of the where it, where it all began. And I also know that in the mountain biking that your first fall, it's kind of a, it's a badge of honor in mountain biking that have taken your first tumble. It you, is. You're all right though. Yeah. I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah. Luckily it wasn't on the course. It was as we were oh. leaving and it was a bit dark and it was on the footpath sadly. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. Thank you for taking the, the, the time to share that second piece of you too. So I think everybody can get to know you both personally and um, professionally. So as we get started, I always like to, to kind of the backstory, you know, if you had to summarize your story, both professionally, but what are the key moments along the way to, if you, if you kind of brought us through your story and your journey professionally, catching us up to where we are now, and then we could talk about your work and some of these, these current themes, how would you summarize and, and share your professional journey, but also adding in some of those key moments in your life that were transformational for you? If I go back to my origin, I was born in Myanmar. My mother is, um, she was half well, descendants from Burmese and Indian. And then my father is um, from northern part of Myanmar, the Shan State, and he has a heritage of northern Chinese Muslims. My grandmother, we don't actually know her origin because she came from one of the tribes through sort of the Himalayas and they've migrated and descended. So that's who I am. So I'm a melting pot of um, of cultures and background and diversity. Um, I spent my early childhood in Myanmar for the first eight years, which was, you know, rich and wonderful in terms of um, experiences. You know, I went to a school and even though we weren't Buddhist, we were predominantly Muslim, learned about Buddhism in school. And then when we migrated to Australia in, in 1988, just during an uprising, you know, that was a um, an ordeal, um, but an adventure. I always see it as an adventure. I think it might have been an ordeal for my parents. Um, for me, it was the best adventure that I had. And I recall my sister and I, all we brought with us was these two little bags. And I remember my parents saying, well, we can only take, you know, absolute cases and bring what you want. You can bring whatever you want. And I, I wonder what, you know, the X-ray um, baggage handlers must have thought, what we just had some weird and wonderful things in there. So I think that's where my adventurous spirit began. And then I spent, you know, all of my childhood into adolescence in Sydney and seeing Sydney evolve and become this multicultural city that it is now. And then after that, it was, you know, going to university, finding out who who I am, landing in, you know, this world of HR, learning and development, which has taken me all over the world. We recently lived in Canada, which we absolutely loved. And now here I am. Now, I know from our conversation, you didn't, uh, and I think I found this to be a fascinating part, it wasn't from uni to HR. You had an interesting journey working your way to HR. Uh, Could you speak a little bit about that? Um, When you first got out of school, what were you doing? I would say my mother was a tiger mom. You know, there was a lot of pressure to perform academically. And I don't think academics was my strong point. You know, I I did well in high school, but I 
geared towards subjects that I loved arts and English and then I did some economics and that really got me interested in business you know how the um, the economy worked finances and business and I thought right that's my path did a finance and economics degree at university and worked for a couple of investment banks and financial institutions and really found that I wasn't enjoying it It was exciting at first. If you've ever been on a trading floor, it is exciting, you know, and it does happen like um, in the movies, you know, there's people yelling and there's lots of things going around. But I don't think it aligned to who I was, my inner values and, um, and what I really wanted to do in life. So after a few years, I was still quite young, you know, in my very early 20s, I decided this wasn't for me. I'm going to look for for another job and see what I want to do. I had three interviews and three opportunities, um, very different paths. One was sticking to the same path for another bank. Uh, One was with with the publishing house doing something completely different. And then another one was with AOL, big internet service provider, you know, in the early 2000s. And it was my conversation with with the two managers at AOL that I think really changed the trajectory of my career. I was providing technical support to customers at the time, which broadband was a big thing. um, And people didn't know how to use a modem and, and the internet. And what I found was that I was really good at talking to people and helping them, you know, not using this technical jargon. And my managers saw that and asked if I wanted to come and help out in the learning and development you know, with training and onboarding and I thought, why not? Let's give this a try. And that's where my journey started into learning and development. Started with technical sort of training and moved into, you know, the softer skills as we call it now, which I think are actually critical skills, you know, around customer service, leadership, conflict resolution, negotiation. So I spent the first 10 years of my career doing that and then branched out into more of that generalist human resources. And now lead a, you know, a large team of very dedicated, passionate HR professionals across, you know, Indonesia and Mongolia and who are Mm. helping our operations, really focusing on, you know, shifting the culture in how how we work. Two things that came up for me when you're sharing. One is, I think, just more of a call out that you gave voice to just that subtle power of, of a manager or even a leader. And in your case, in the interview, and I'm saying that for anybody that's listening, of just remembering how critical. And you had a conversation and interview that changed the course of your life because you were inspired and the way you connected. So all these little touch points that I think all of us are working and building processes and sometimes get away from the human mm-hmm. to remember that our managers, our hiring managers, have the power to really influence and change trajectories and lives and put people on, on paths. And, and, and unfortunately, some people maybe never get put on that path. So I think that's in your story. It's, it was really nice for you to hear you call that out. The other piece I wanted to ask you about that came up for me was every time I've spoken to you, I feel this uh, a unique connection around the creativity. And it took me a long time, I think, to own my creativity. And now I feel fully, I see it in all of my work. But I too got an, my undergraduate degree was in, in business. Um, and you went down that path in, in retrospect, connecting the dots that do you see creativity in numbers in the finance when you were doing the schooling before you got into the work world saying it might not be the best place for me. 
Did you feel like you're going away from your creativity or when you're in school studying that, did you feel like it, it augmented it and you saw it? And I'm asking that because I think so many times it gets packaged in a, that's not creative, that's linear. Um, do you feel that way? Do you still feel that way about, about uh, the economics, the numbers, or did you, did you see your creativity in that? Look, I probably, I think there is some elements of creativity in numbers and economics. When you think about you know, economics, I really see it. It's, it's a very human subject. We talk about numbers and, and GDP, and, but it really is about human behaviour. You know, I had a professor who made that link for me, um, funnily enough, in my MBA, when I went back to it, you know, 15 years later, and looking at economics as a way of how understanding human behaviour. So I think that's probably the element that I was attracted to it. I think underlying, you know, I'm, I am a very sort of creative person, but I think, and I've been reflecting since we spoke last week, is, you know, what is that connection for me that has been instilled in me since my origin? And really I think it's around service, um, mm. providing service to others and that human connection. And I think that's why I struggled early on in my career when I was in finance because it was very transactional and it was all about we've got to make that move now so we can sell that share now because the market's moving and it was missing that human element. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. You know, I too have reflected back and I think there it was for me a lot of creativity. Even now, uh, sometimes when I see lots of numbers, the creativity and be able to take that process that and then create story and tell a story. And I think there's the creativity in that piece as well, which I imagine you have leveraged in in your work today. So, you know, kind of moving forward, you know, you've done this work now for a while, you're leading this team. What has inspired you? What drives you? What, what gets you out of bed every morning in the work that you're doing now? Yeah, great question. Um, it's something I do ask myself every morning. Mm. It really is people and the, I guess, the opportunity. I feel privileged to have this opportunity to make an impact. You know, as I mentioned before, I work without Asia part of the business. And um, yesterday we had like a webinar talk show to celebrate Kartini Day. So Kartini Day is an equivalent of International Women's Day in Indonesia. And Kartini is, you know, Indonesian lady who made some big, I guess, big strides towards gender equality. And I've been working with my team, my, you know, um, in diversity and inclusion around all of these events and we are actually shifting the culture and I have a part to play in that and, and leading that in many instances and having conversations to shift mindsets, whether it's around leadership, you know, inclusivity. You know, we had a really great discussion with various members of, of the team around LBGTI um, and allyship because, you know, as you know, some of the countries in Asia have some really strong laws against single-sex marriages and so on. And so I think, you know, I have that opportunity to shape the culture of the people I work with, the lives that they lead in the organization. You do. You do. And you uniquely in our conversation, I think a lot of leaders in this space right now are thinking about cross-cultural and how we bring people together. But it, it, it landed on me in our conversation, the depth of diversity we're talking about in your world, not only we're talking about mining, we're talking about mining sites. These can be rural locations across multiple countries. You were mentioning South America, you're into Asia, now you're across religion. 
even most of us are talking about, well, when people come together, what's, what's the culture? But you're, you're dealing with unique cultures that are dispersed, that are you know, tight to their own cultures and their own locations. What have you learned about working and diversity inclusion across culture? Particularly, I'd love to hear what you've learned, but also what you'd share back to an organization. Let's say it's a technology organization with three locations in Australia, San Francisco, and London. What have you learned that you, you would share back I think the, my biggest learning is that we can't have a one-size-fits-all mm. cookie-cutter solution. You know, I think a lot of organisations do want, you know, they genuinely want to do the right thing and have all of these great policies and initiatives. And it may work in, in the US or it may work in the UK, but it won't work in another geography. So it's really about understanding the culture, the cultural context, the social norms, and then having solutions that really, um, I guess, complements and fits with those, you know, the cultures and um, thinking about how you want to make that impact and where rather than just say, this is what we're doing and we're moving forward. So I, let's say I'm a leader of an organization of 500 people in a a location. Mm -hmm. How does that hold true in, in, in a single location as well? Is it, is, it, is it the same thing of just really understanding and realizing we can create unique cultures inside of a culture? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, even if you say it's an organization in Australia and it's only based in Australia, but it's really understanding about your demographics of your business and the culture. But I also think, you know, businesses need to look externally at the communities that they're engaging with, their customer base, and understanding that and reflecting that, you know, so their internal DNI policies or initiatives should really link into the community as well. You know, if I if I'm an Australian business based in Sydney, uh, where there's predominantly immigrant, I guess, um, population, we need to look at how can we then connect with those communities and and also serve them with our internal policies. The organisation I work for, we do that a lot in the Indigenous space, um, looking at, you know, what are the local Indigenous communities that we can work with? And it goes right through from, you know, not just programs internally, but looking at our supply chain. Mm. You know, if we're if we're having an event, do we, you know, do we in- ensure that we include a local Indigenous supplier that we can use? So we're promoting, promoting them as well along the journey. That's wonderful. Now I want to flip it. I want to look at the other side and say, you are an organization. What culturally needs to stay across? Is there is there a thread, a cultural thread that that ties all of those unique cultures that that you nurture individually? Mm-hmm. What's the piece culturally that 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 holds it together and and is the same across? And how's that built? Yeah, I think it's 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 your values of the organization. I think that's got to be the common thread across the organization, um, whatever they may be. You know that and respect. I think respect. Most a lot of organizations have respect built into, into their values or, or their state. You know mission statements and so on. But I think having a respect for different cultures, differences in general. I'm so happy you said. That. I mean that's that's where my mind goes. And I think about this with organizations or even building community. Right, we're trying to build a community across the world. If you're too prescriptive, well, that doesn't work. That's not fluid enough. So I think what we came up with it was the same thing is this idea of what are your values or your core principles. If you've done a good job and you understand your company, those should be able to hold across. Those are the underpinnings of how we operate, yet giving, and I think this is the piece to leaders, and then trust that and allow your local leaders to build 
right? In San Francisco, it's a different culture. It's a different vibe. Things are different than in, in, in London. And I've seen companies struggle with that. They want to keep one culture across it all. And it, it becomes challenging versus those values. At the end of the day, this is how anybody at our organization is going to operate fundamentally. Like we believe in this. And aside from that, build uniquely for you. Absolutely, Craig. I think you're yeah. spot on. I think the values, if you can live by those values, that will shine through in, in the culture of an organization. Any interesting story before we move on you want to share? Just, I mean, just, again, I'm intrigued. The, the work you do, the locations you are, any interesting work, culture, people story that, that, that stands out for you? Um, oh, I think every day is interesting. Okay. You know, I think um, it keeps me on my toes. I think what's interesting is um, what I've observed, and this is across many organizations that I've worked for, is when we go into a new country or a different culture, usually it's a, it's a head office, mm-hmm. is we want to imprint and um, say, well, these are our values, this is how we're going to live it, and we want you to do the same. But I think they need to flip that around and say, we want you to do the same, but you tell us what those values look like for you, you know, and how do you live those within your cultural, social context? And I think that needs to evolve. Um, you know, I've seen that across a few organisations that I've worked at. Um, so I think there's there's still some work to be done yeah. around really having a global organisation. It's interesting. You're talking globally. And I also think also one of the things we do is we're a very values-driven organisation. And with our new hires, we in our, part of our induction is we we do the session where we talk about our values, but part of that session is what are your values and how do your values attach to our value? How do you see these values in your in your life? But I think it's what you're talking about. It's saying these are important to us, but how do they translate? Because values should be translatable, right? They should not be descriptive. I've always said it's the Velcro, right? We, the company, the organization has values to go deliver what we say we're going to deliver to the world. But all these individuals that bring all these backgrounds, so if we can help them attach their own individual values to these values that hold us together as an organization, as an entity into itself is the secret sauce. And it sounds like the same thing. You go into these places, our values, how do these resonate with you and how do we latch those two together? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you talk about San Francisco and London, you know, I think one can assume if you are operating in San Francisco and you go into London, you think, well, we speak English. (laughs) How different could it be? But in reality, when you start to peel the, you know, the onion, it's so different. And I think a lot of organizations make that mistake. Especially to Americans, Australians seem very, they're very similar. It feels, I, I also have Australian family, by the way, so I, I love Australia and the culture, but it's been an interesting journey because over four years, you're, we talk the same language and you pick up along the way these, these subtle, so I was, I was laughing at just my journey of working for an Australian company along the way and learning, you know, it's, it's very subtle, but we, we've grown up very far apart in different ways and there's just unique differences. Absolutely. I'm sure you've picked up some Australian, unique Australian way of saying things or words along the way. Yeah, Arvo, <laughs> Fortnite, uh, some things, yeah, learning, the, yeah, uh, catching that <laughs> words are getting cut off and names are getting cut off and uh, just getting used to that. That's, <laughs> that's been one of them. Before we leave the, the diversity piece, I asked you a question. It was really interesting and I'll go there and I also I'm, I, I want to ask you about this, uh, your reconciliation action plan. But it started in our conversation because one of the things I've learned talking about Australia and Australian culture is the is the honoring of the land. Now, I never I had never mm-hmm. seen that before, and I was really touched getting involved in, in an Australian organization, doing events, and starting to see that was was really special. And 
Um, but I've also learned through, gosh, I mean, the four years I've been with Culture Amp and what we've been going through here in America, which has really started a lot of conversations. And I feel like in Australia and, and our CEO is, is, is owned up to like Australia's got a lot of some challenges and some issues. They're, they're different and, and in some ways the same. And my question to you was, what was the alignment? Did it feel, was it just an action or did it, did it have some gravitas? Did it hold? And I really enjoyed your answer. You talked about the transition. I'll, 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 I guess I'll ask that to you again, mm-hmm. your thoughts on how is Australia doing and are those actions aligning with, you know, what, what we're seeing in the world and you know, how's that movement? Um, and then I want to, I want to talk a little bit about the reconciliation because that's something I think Americans are really struggling to get their head around this idea of reconciliation. And it sounds like that's a conversation that is at least happening in Australia, um, so I know I'm curious, and I, I imagine people that are listening would be curious to hear a little bit more about that as well. When you asked me that question, I think, you know, if you asked me that question 10 years ago, I probably would have said, I think I didn't feel it was genuine. You know, our previous organisations I've worked for, we we do the, you know, acknowledgement of country in formal settings. So um, for those listeners who may not be familiar with it, essentially, the, um, our Indigenous way of introducing or acknowledging country is that, you know, in the Aboriginal culture, there is no concept of land ownership, but just that we are the custodians for the time that we are on this earth. And so in, in Australia, in most formal settings, opening workshops, things like that, we do actually acknowledge the land that we're on and the custodian, the people. So where I am in Brisbane, um, on the south of the river, is the Tarrable people. So we acknowledge them and pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. It wasn't until I joined this or to my current organisation where, you know, we have a reconciliation action plan. I felt that, um, you know, the organisation was genuinely looking to make a change and genuine in, in the way that they approach the reconciliation action plan. We have a big graduate program and bring, bring graduates together. And it's the first time I've seen we have like a welcome smoking ceremony where we actually invite elders of the community, you know, whether it's in Brisbane or um, or in Sydney, and really introduce people to that culture. And, and our graduate program was global. So you would have people, you know, that may be from Chile or Indonesia that, has never been exposed to the Indigenous people of Australia. Um, so I saw that and I thought, you know, this is it's fantastic. But not, not only that, but a lot of organisations now are looking more than just, you know, programs to um, provide employment and education, but really, as I mentioned before, things like supply chain, because that makes a huge difference, you know, when you're looking at Indigenous suppliers and you're promoting their businesses um, and allowing them to grow and prosper. So in Australia, we have what's called a reconciliation action plan, and it's it's not mandatory, but most businesses will have one, and there's different levels. And this action plan, there's usually a set period, um, and the organisations, so it's not just businesses, you know, schools have it as well, will work with Reconciliation Australia and look at what are the actions that we can do and we are held accountable to it to deliver against those actions. Growing up in Australia, we didn't learn too much. Well, I didn't learn too much um, about Indigenous history. My son will be starting high school in a couple of years. And I did a school tour yesterday afternoon mm. 
And I was impressed that they have a reconciliation action plan in their high school and they incorporate a lot of Indigenous art into their, you know, even design of the schools. So it was really great to see. And even talking to my son, you know, there's more um, acknowledgement. You know, we have different celebrations throughout the year to celebrate um, our Indigenous people. And it's great to see that that's happening in schools now as well. There's still a lot of dark history. Mm-hmm. And I think that needs to be incorporated into the history that we teach our children. Cherry's comments about acknowledging the dark history of Australia really resonates with me. As an American, I feel it too and see that it is such an essential part of doing the work. I am also acutely aware of my own privilege and how this influences how I am seen and move through the world. I know that these conversations are difficult to have, but we need to keep having them every day. Because if we refuse to, we won't ever get to the other side. We'll just stay stuck, unwilling to look at and acknowledge the injustices that have occurred which have led to the privilege that so many of us benefit from. There is still so much more work to be done. I also realize that in this conversation, we've only skimmed the surface of what it means to commit to a reconciliation action plan and the significance of the acknowledgement of country in Australia. So we've put some resources in the show notes to give more context and more information. So look, I want to switch gears a little bit. I thought, you know, one of the things that was unique about your work is this idea of culture of safety. Now, safety, psychological safety, physical safety does come up often, but I think few people are leading organizations that it's is critical in in like a field like yours. I mean, this is this is mining. This is serious. If people aren't practicing and having a culture of safety, people will get hurt. Probably do, and more would, and 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 lives are at risk. So, I wanted to start high level, of just culture of safety, where it's you know it's so critical and so important. So, thinking about that, and then I think drilling it down because there's a lot of learnings that I think so many people that are thinking about safety, maybe not life or death safety, creating safe workplaces and how that ties together. So I guess we'll start high level, like talking about your work and thinking about safety when you're thinking about trying to build a culture that's that's, that's creating safety uh, in the workplace. It wasn't until I came into mining, which is now sort of seven years ago now, you know, that safety has actually permeated into my personal life. And that's the impact that an organisation that truly cares about safety can have on a person. Safety is about a mindset. You know, I think an organisation can have the best procedures, protocols, but if people don't genuinely believe in it and look at it in terms of this is about me and, you know, about keeping myself safe and also keeping the person next to me so that we can both go home alive. I think that kind of um, mindset has to be really shifted. You know, I've been involved in sort of safety leadership training over the years, and I think that's where it can make the biggest difference. When you work for an organisation that has a good safety culture, that is being that is reputable for a safety culture, I think you become complacent and almost forget that it is, you know, that that's just how we do things. It comes back to culture. It's our values. And it's just how we do things. Both this organisation and the previous organisation, Mining, that I've worked for, you know, had a very good safety culture. And I, I recall we did this safety leadership program and we actually had to write a plan. And this is for all, you know, throughout the whole organisation, our safety plan for home. And until that point, I didn't realise, you know, I, I had at the time a four-year-old son at home and I thought, what if there was a fire? What is my, you know, fire escape? Um, what is our evacuation plan? And it wasn't until that point that I, you know, I think that changed my view on safety. 
And I, you know, as an adventurous person, I'm a bit of a risk taker. But I think I've incorporated even personal safety into everything that I do. Now, for example, if I've been skiing the whole day, I will not do that last run if I know that my legs are aching because that's when you can have the accident. And that's something that I think, you know, both my husband and I have started to instill into um, to my son as well. You know, it has actually, working for an organisation that has a strong safety culture um, and a principle can really change, you know, the employees' lives. And I think that's probably the best outcome that an organisation can hope for, that safety is something that you take home with you to ensure that you change your mindset and your attitude around around safety. What has um, building uh, highly focused on physical safety, mm-hmm. in your case, you know, a, a culture like that, what have you learned about psychological safety? So let's ex- extrapolate safety, you know, into terms that I think we're hearing a lot more across all organizations. Because look, I'll be honest, many organizations I walk into don't have safety as one of their core values, but everybody's talking about creating safe environments, uh, probably mostly psychological, but also just safe in general. So what what would you say you've learned through this that you would share if you went somewhere else that you weren't thinking about physical safety that you would take with you around creating psychologically safe environments? I think psychological safety actually underpins physical safety, you know. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, you, you want a culture where people feel free to speak up and say, you know, I think I think we can improve this protocol better or this process better or, hey, I've done the wrong thing. You know, I've um, rather than than hiding it. So I think psychological safety is so important um, to every aspect of a team or an organisation. And it links back to our conversation around diversity and inclusion earlier. You know, I think um, where people can feel included and feel safe in the environment that they're in, to be themselves, to, to bring them whole selves to work so that they don't have to say, well, you know, um, I'm coming to work now. I'm going to take my, you know, religious hat off or take my um, sexual orientation hat off and I'm going to be this person when I walk through the door, through the office. And I think psychological safety underpins that where people can feel can feel safe. And I think that's when people can perform to their very best. Yeah. Are there any tips, things that you've done, especially in, I imagine, probably even in your six or seven years i uh, again i'm projecting correct me if i'm wrong but uh, probably highly masculine uh mining um where some of these topics or concepts are probably still trying to be absorbed any tips or how are you encouraging psychological safety and to have those conversations speak up if something's wrong go against the grain i think it, it starts with building a environment of trust um and it has to start with you as the leader so I, when I took on this Asia role, um, I recently had to step in and really manage, you know, a team of individuals who are based in Asia. Some of them I've met in person, some of them I haven't, um, just because the borders are closed and I can't travel. And, you know, a few things that I've done, even though I'm on VC, is really open up the conversation around psychological safety, around well-being and being vulnerable. And that doesn't mean sharing everything. You know, I always say vulnerability with boundaries and opening myself up to them and allowing them to open themselves up, you know, within within that safe environment of the leadership team. And so even the meetings that I have with my direct reports are very intentional. On Mondays, it's all very technical. 
you know, we talk about what's our priority for the week, what we need from each other and so on. Um, and because we're in a virtual environment, I meet with them every two days. So on Wednesday, we have a meeting and it's purely a check-in meeting. How are you going? You know, how's your family? How, you know, some of them are um, doing online schooling. Some of them are, nurse, you know, nursing children. So everyone's in a different environment. And I think even through that process alone, you know, I think people feel safe and people are open. They feel open to share stuff that may be going on in their personal lives. And then on Fridays, you know, we have a meeting and we also check in and also we celebrate successes and wins and support each other. So I think by creating those and having those intentional sort of moments will allow um, psychological safety. And it, it doesn't happen overnight. You don't just, you know, walk in and say, right, I think it takes time and you have to build it as a leader. You know, there were some great tips in there, but I also, what I took from that was that don't wait for somebody else. Like we all have to figure out how can you show up? How can we model it? And if you're, particularly if you're a leader, that like you said, that, you know, you're using that platform and that opportunity to encourage that you're being vulnerable, which builds trust, which means it safer for others. And it takes time. Like you're not going to go in and change one thing in a week. Like this is, this is human behavioral change. Um, but if anything, I, what I heard is model it, be it, do it yourself, you know, be what you want to see in the world. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. All right. So back to a topic that we, we hit early. Um, but I really enjoy talking to this creativity and innovation. What are your thoughts? How's that inspire you? And how are you bringing that into your work and into your world and encouraging others to, to do the same? Because that's, that's another big topic, right? How do, we, how, do we, how do we stay innovative and creative? Creativity, I think it's almost like part of my DNA. You know, I think I've, I've probably felt it as a very young child in me, you know, whether it's through art or, um, you know, through drawings and so on. And then, you know, it, it's it's been there throughout my life, throughout my adolescence. And I think it's it's such a crucial skill that we need to have. And I think, you know, often people think, well, I'm not creative because I'm not artistic. And I think it's a myth that we need to debunk, you know. And we've just finished the World Creativity and Innovation Week from I think it was 15 to 21st of April so and which is really about promoting you know how we bring creativity and innovation into the world you know I've tried to implement it into all the different roles I've had over the years you know whether it's you know designing learning programs or whether it's trying to influence um, a culture of creativity and innovation and, you know one of the things that I did this is going back about five years ago. Um, we were, I was working for an organization that um, was going through a lot of, uh, I guess, a bit of a tough time culturally. There's just we've just been through a, an MA. And I was speaking to one of my engineering colleagues who looked after the engineering department and said, Look, we need to do something. And, you know, and we did this as our second part-time night job and came up with a an innovation program. And it was really about how do we get ideas out of our people? Um, how do we celebrate them, but give them the tools, you know, around um, design thinking? Um, how do I develop this idea? How do I pitch it? How do I sell it? And how do I make it viable? And, um, you know, we didn't have any budget for it. We pitched it to the executive team at the time and said, look, we're doing this. We're not asking for resources. Mm. And they said, yep, go ahead. And it actually made a big difference to try and really um, uplift a culture of an organization when it's going through a really difficult time. 
shift the focus on creativity and innovation. And I know from, you know, I, st- I still am in contact with um, a lot of my old colleagues from that organization and a lot of those ideas have been implemented. I love that you said that, and particularly when you talked about mergers and acquisitions, uh, you know, one of the surveys that's it's popular or how we support organizations is we have a whole toolkit at Culture Amp around mergers and acquisitions, right? Both from the, on, on both sides of the organizations, periodically moving them through. But what you just did there, there I think is really interesting. Like what a, what a unique approach to shift the focus from what's happening to me, what's going on, how's, you know, to, to innovation, which ultimately is, well, how can I be part of the solution here? What can we think about? And I, I think that's a great, tip. I didn't think about that before, um, you know, that shift of, of focus to innovation and any, you know, as a fellow creative and you've risen, it seems like really well inside of a large organization. Um, have there been challenges as a creative to get to your level? Like how, how's that played out? Yeah, I think creativity in a, in a large organization, is always hard. You know, I think um, often people think about it's big budgets and so on. It's interesting you ask that question because I am currently in a role, which most people would say, you know, when you're um, looking after HR for such a large operation, it's very tactical. You know, it's lots of tasks. This is what I have to do, you know, whether it's, um, you know, recruitment, disciplinary, whatever it is. And I actually do find that I don't have a lot of time for creativity in my current role. So I look for inspiration and I need a creative outlet outside of, of the work that I'm doing. You know, and I think for a large organisation, anyone working in innovation or wanting to drive an innovative culture or creativity, I think all I can say is be patient and be persistent. In a smaller organisation, it's easier to, you know, things move a lot quicker. Um, in a larger organisation, it, it really comes back to culture. And I think it would be looking at, so what are we trying, what's the problem that we're trying to to solve? And then how do we, how do we move forward? Yeah. And it's becoming more and more critical, right? We, I mean, the world, I mean, it used to be technology was moving so quickly, but it seems like technology is really everywhere now in every organization and every type of industry. So agility, creativity are becoming really critical. And even said large organizations, I think are going to have to think about how to, how do we build that in? Because if you can't move quickly, it's a, it's a challenging, it's a challenging time. So it's just Personally, I'm excited to see more of an emphasis on creativity and innovation, um, but it's also going to be a challenge for a lot of organizations. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've seen that with a lot of organizations through the pandemic, uh, where organizations have pivoted and had to change. And I think, and if anything, to me, highlighted that we're actually not tapping into the creative skill. We're not allowing people to think creatively. I'm certainly feeling it anyway, um, just because of the busyness. We move from one thing to another, one meeting to the next. We're not allowing that time for reflection and that critical thinking, which needs creativity. You know, how do you look at it from a different perspective? How do you change lens? I think there's some work to do for a lot of organisations and um, especially in, in leadership programs. How do we ensure that leaders foster a culture of creativity and innovation within their own teams. Don't think too big and think about the whole organisation. I think often I've, I've been in this position, I have to think about, well, you know, the whole organisation and trying to change it. Start with your team. Start with yourself and your team. As I was preparing for this conversation, I learned about some of the work that Tease has been doing with people who have previously been incarcerated. 
I was inspired to see how these programs designed to give ex-offenders a second chance have become part of their brand and culture. I love seeing programs like this for two main reasons. One, because I fundamentally believe that people are deserving of a second chance. And two, because I believe that there's an incredible amount of unlocked talent among groups of people who are often overlooked and our workplaces can benefit from rethinking where and how we source talent especially now given our advances in accessibility due to COVID. So in speaking with Cherry, I come to understand that this idea of second chances has a deeply personal meaning for her. And so we start to unpack this at both a personal level, but also a professional one, looking at how it translates into the workplace. Everyone deserves a second chance. We should be predetermined on this path. You know, everyone makes a mistake and, um, and it's at a point in time and people can change. If I think personally, you know, I spoke about even my own career in terms of, you know, having a second chance and moving and shifting my career to something completely different, which was, you know, which has changed my life. But even if I go, if I think about, reflect on my family, my parents migrated to Australia. They were 39 um, with two young girls. At the time when they migrated from Myanmar, the country was going through an uprising, very similar to you know what the world is seeing right now. During the uprising, banks were closed, everything was shut down, and they came to another country, to a foreign land, with literally $2 in their pocket um, because they couldn't access the bank. And I think for them, that was a second chance at life. It's not that they had a bad life. They were public servants you know, a lawyer and a geologist, reputable professions. But in a developing country ruled by the military, being a public servant doesn't pay very well. You know, we lived with my grandparents because um, we couldn't afford our own house. And often my father had, you know, second jobs just to ensure that we have enough to live, even though, you know, he was he was a lawyer. And so we came to Australia and they... I, you know, I probably didn't understand it as a child, but looking back on it, they now, they own their own house in Sydney. They have for several years, which is all paid off. You know, you just think, wow, they really worked hard um, to ensure that my sister and I would have a great life, which we do. But, you know, when you're growing up as a teenager, you, you often think, oh, we never eat out or we don't go on holidays. But in fact, what they were doing was ensuring that we had financial security. I think my father sacrificed going back to university to get his law degree recognised because it wasn't recognised here because he wanted to ensure that we had financial security. And, you know, so he, he just went out and worked rather than doing something that he loved. My mum, on the other hand, was very fortunate. You know, she worked for um, a government organisation in Australia called CSIRO and only just retired recently, you know, as a one of the best geologists in her field. And so I think second chances are so important. And if you think about it in terms of an organisational context, you know, there are so many opportunities for organisations, whether it's with doing work with refugees, those that have been incarcerated, even, you know, young sort of um, juveniles who have been, you know, who haven't had the best upbringing and really engaging with them to give them an opportunity to have a second go at their lives. Because oftentimes you'll find that's all that's needed, that the opportunity was never Absolutely. there. When someone gives that opportunity, especially to somebody that's that, that mm -hmm. struggled, sometimes you're going to get a lot, you know, what, what comes out is amazing. I, I'm really happy you gave that voice. And so we're going to transition now. We end with uh, these quick questions. Before we do, when we started, you mentioned a quote 
that you said has been sticking out to you um, recently. So what was that quote? So it's a quote by George Bernard Shaw. And the quote is, life isn't about finding yourself. Life is about creating yourself. And I love that quote um, because I think if I think about my upbringing, there's an immigrant child growing up, trying to fit in. And I think especially during my 20s, it was all about I need to find myself. Who am I? You know, who is Cherry? And I think I probably, I wouldn't say wasted, but I spent a lot of energy trying to find myself. And then it wasn't until probably my 30s. I thought, you know, it's about I can create who I want to be. And um, and I think it's something that I want to try and instill in people who are who may be struggling, who may not know what they want to do with their careers. And I often try and bring this back to when I'm coaching leaders, is you know, it's not about finding yourself, it's 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 about creating who you are. Yeah, with intentionality. What do you want to be and create that? All right. Are you ready for the questions? Sure. Fire away. First one, new emergent theme for you in this past year? Entrepreneurship. So during the pandemic, I've started my own company. It's called Bluebird Leadership. It's a work in progress. I need to get into that, that really that creative, innovative mindset and um and and work on being a becoming an entrepreneur. Biggest challenge for you? Raising my 10-year-old son. Mm. <laughs> I think parenting is so hard. You know, I can I can lead any team, I can go into any, you know, any mining project, I can have the toughest conversations, but raising a child is hard. It is, it is, it is a type of work <laughs> and a level of intensity that's it's hard to describe. Um, if you were standing on a stage in front of every manager in the world, what's one thing you'd say to them? Lead from within. Music is big to me. I always throw this in. Speak to some music, a song, an artist that has impacted your life. Oh, wow. So many. I love music. I actually like rock. Big fan. One band that I actually um, am a huge fan of is um, Imagine Dragons. Mm. They're fairly new to the scene, but I love their work because they're trying to change and influence the culture. So um, they're from Utah, predominantly Mormon culture. There's a huge epidemic around there around um, youth suicide, especially around the LBGTI community. And they're really trying to bring a shine of light, you know, um, to raise awareness around mm. that. So I love their work. Now that you said you're a music fan. Any honorable mentions? What are some other bands or, that have been uh, really important oh, to you in your life? Oh, so many. Um, Foo Fighters, you know, Bon Jovi, um, Guns N' Roses. I remember I drove with some friends. I must have been 18, 19, 10 hours to go drive to Melbourne to see Bon Jovi because they weren't playing in Sydney. And... One of my friends, he was a hardcore Bon Jovi fan and he actually slept out so he could be at the front of the stage. I wasn't that I wasn't that mm -hmm. um, diehard, but um, it was oh, one of the best it. concerts I've oh, been to. I saw, I saw like Bon Jovi three times back in the heydays. <laughs> Skid Row opened for Bon Jovi, at least in the States. That's who it was. So oh, wow. I love it. Yeah. Um, if you could take a vacation anywhere in the world right now, where would you go? I am a big avid skier. And I, this is the longest I haven't gone without skiing with the pandemic. I would be um, anywhere in North America on a mountain with a pair of skis. I know it's spring over there right now. I would take slushy snow over no snow. I love it. Oh, wow. Book recommendation. Oh, okay. 
so many. There's a great book that I'm reading now um, and it's called Die Empty by Todd Henry. And it's all about how do you, when you die, you want to be empty. You don't want to have any regrets. You don't want to think about things that you didn't do. So how do you build a body of work that you can be proud of so that you can die empty? I love it. Die empty. And great name. Yeah. Um, Podcast recommendation. I'm a big, huge podcast nerd. I love Brene Brown's um, Unlocking Us and Dare to Lead, um, Simon Sinek. I actually do love the Culture Amp, Culture First podcast. And the other two that I love listening to is Jenny Blake's Pivot podcast. And she's just got another one called Free Time, which is for um, you know people who have their own sort of heart-based businesses um, and upcoming entrepreneurs. So uh, those are my go-tos. And, of course, the other one, sorry, should be a big mention because I love all his work is um, Todd Henry, who's the author of Die Empty and quite a few other books. And he has a podcast called The Accidental Creative, which is amazing. Little short snippets. It's, it's a great podcast. What's your superpower? Oh, what's my superpower? I wish I could say I could fly. No, um, I can remain really calm in any situation. I can see that. I think you'd be a very calming force. Yeah, yes, yeah, I can see that. Uh, last one, how do you keep learning and growing? I Learning is, it's, again, it's probably one of my core values and it's always learning something new. I think I mentioned to you um, mountain biking. I didn't even ride bikes that much. I didn't. I don't think I had a bike growing up, just because my parents couldn't afford it. But again, that's an activity that I took up so I could spend more time with my family and friends. But it's always learning a new activity. I think if you learn something new, then you know you're keeping your brain engaged. Cherry, uh, thank you. I'm so grateful that I had this opportunity to get to know you in this process. Um, I'm inspired. It's a reminder of the heart and soul I want to see more of in this world, especially when it comes to leading our people in our organizations. So I'm really grateful I've gotten to know you and I just thank you and I appreciate you, the work you're doing and how you show up in the world. Oh, absolutely. Thank you, Craig, for having me on the podcast. I've enjoyed our conversations and I do hope we keep the conversation going. We are and we are collectively. So thank you. Humanity Works is hosted by me, Craig Foreman, produced and edited by Alessia Campagna with technical production by Anthony Watson. And a special thanks to our executive producers, Leonie Rothwell and Marcus Worrall. To activate a world of powerful potential, visit Sprouta.com. Hi, I'm Leonie. And I'm Marcus. And together, we founded Sprouta. If you love our Humanity Works podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, share, or leave a review wherever you listen. We can't wait to bring you more stories of amazing people doing amazing things in people performance and culture.